0: all right so as we were preparing this episode uh conveniently and topically uh this wonderful twitter thread appeared in our (laughs) twitter feed
1: oh not this
0: yeah i mean unfortunately i showed i shouldn't have showed it to you before so we would have like some like live uh react takes
1: yeah i can't i can't muster that now but just know that when he read this to me the first time i just about lost my mind (laughs) (laughs)
0: This is like the worst shit. I'm glad
1: you spend more time on Twitter than me. I can tell you that. (laughs) (laughs)
0: Infinitely. (laughs) Jesus Christ. So here it goes, people. Socialism is not about improving living conditions. Right. If you call yourself a communist simply because you, quote, want better living conditions, then you're just a sock them, not a communist.
1: Mm. I don't care
0: how many people China, scare quotes, lifts out of poverty. I don't care about that. I care about communism. I'm not a sock them. Social democracy is when you reform capitalism to gain better conditions while abandoning communism. This one is actually kind of true. Uh, great, isn't it? Like, let me read you some, some, some. Yeah. Give me the
1: whole, give me the whole chain.
0: Yeah. It's, I mean, highlights. It is really bothersome how many socialists use incredibly liberal measurements when judging the success of any given state. Like, I don't know. Yeah. yeah. Um, removing poverty. Liberal. Uh, Yeah, like, lol, true, I don't care about lifting a few out of poverty, I care about liberating everybody from capitalism and other systems of oppression. I'm pretty sure this is not ironic.
1: Yeah, I wouldn't call, you know, 100 million people a few, but whatever.
0: Or several (laughs) several hundred million million people. (laughs) Improving living conditions, scare quotes, can be parallel to assimilationism in queer analysis. (laughs) Making sure the oppressive system doesn't alienate the oppressed too quick pushing them into refusal of imposed roles. It's, at its core, systems conservation mechanism. <laughs> and the best one of all, poverty is a concept produced by the dominant class's wealth. Mm. Socialism is not a question of a Hegelian negative unity of opposites, <laughs> Jesus Christ. but of the materially determined destruction of the preceding mode of life. Not only the worse is eliminated, but also the... Better. The capitalists during the establishment of a class society will keep dictating the concept of poverty. Poverty is the shadow of capital.
1: This is some big brain horseshit.
0: This is is the most terminally academic left I've ever read. Yeah, this is
1: terrible. This, this, is is
0: this, this is like why I think Mao was right, like it's a cultural revolution, we, we need, like the revolution must destroy, physically remove all bourgeois intellectuals from
1: society. Yeah, the extinction of academics as a class. <laughs> okay, well, sorry for uh, imposing that horror show on you listeners, but this is uh, really relevant <laughs> to, our, to our discussion Yeah, today. this was
0: like incredibly timely. We are doing an episode on the welfare state.
1: Yeah. Is it uh, good or bad? <laughs> are, uh, is, is council housing a capitalist psyop? Or is it a like real conquest of working class struggle? Um, are all communists who care about wages sock dams? And is the true revolution uh, in your heart? <laughs> <laughs>
0: So welcome to Street Me for everyone.
1: <laughs> yeah. My name's Will,
0: <laughs> and I'm Ricardo. And today we are addressing uh, our first and only up till now uh, Patreon question by uh, patron Jose Alves. Um, and um, yeah, it's a it's a, it's a good one. Like uh, this was like three months ago. <laughs> we got this question. We couldn't address it until now because like yeah, we just too late when it so it. and things. then we had an interview and uh, we had to do with. Uh, interviewees' uh, availabilities. Um, But yeah, like, to compensate, now we're answering the question with a fully dedicated episode to the topic of the question. So, yeah, shall I read the question? Yeah. So, asks our patron, José Alves, uh, José, thanks so much for uh, for the super deep and serious question. Uh, We'll try to make uh, justice to it. So, there we go. I would like to hear your take on something that was discussed in a little bit in every other episode. I would say way more than a little bit. Like, we we are constantly running into this topic all the time. Uh, And uh, addressed in depth in the conference cycle that we both both organized, the uh, crisis cycle. This is something we did at the Architectural Association like a couple of years ago. Um, It's essentially about the welfare state and how should we theorize or think the welfare state as a category that is homogeneous. The idea I got from listening to you guys is that there is a kind of general idea of what was the welfare state. For instance, to see the welfare state as something that can be classified as a strategy that wanted to produce an alternative within capitalism's totality. When I think about these things, I try to relate these problems with my own reality. I'm Portuguese, like Ricardo, and in Portugal, the welfare state was a late construction, born out of the need to stabilize a revolutionary conflictual situation. The country's democratic revolution was in 1975, So, looking in retrospect, you can see that the welfare state here was at the same time creating new institutions related with social security, health and education, but at the same time, it was laying the foundations for new liberal policies. For instance, in promoting precarious labour policies and in linking the financial system to the housing market in such a way that 40 years later it is almost impossible to imagine alternatives to that model of appropriation in the country. So, the ambiguity of the welfare state in the Portuguese case makes me think in the relationship between these strategies and about the actual failure of the welfare state. Was it a failure? What was its purpose in the first place? Was it not from the beginning a strategy to tame the revolutionary momentum of the working class? And more, if we think from thirty-five to 1975, Portugal was ruled by an autocratic dictatorial state known as the Estado Novo, so new state. Hmm. These 40 years of dictatorial rule, 48 actually, Uh, impoverished the nation's people by calibrating a clear-cut distinction between the lower classes, the exploited majority, and the ruling class, the exploiter minority. This was true, but at the same time, this dictatorial state managed to launch the institutional basis of the welfare state that would emerge after seventy-five. This is absolutely factually correct. Um... So I really want to hear your opinion on this because I don't know how to square the characterization you guys present of the welfare state, which I interpret as something that is kind of good and progressive, with this very ambiguous reality of the Portuguese development. Yeah. So. Uh, so really that excellent is question. The question, and it's uh, like probably something. This is probably something an episode we should do anyway. Yeah. Yeah, we we keep getting back to a kind of revolutionary defense of uh, what is kind of generally framed as welfare state uh, measures and policies uh, in yeah. architecture, yeah, and uh, critiques of radical left critiques of it that we find flawed, yeah,
1: um, etc. Right. And this like well-informed perspective he's bringing from Portugal, uh, in a less extreme form, exists in other Western countries like Britain. Uh, or Canada or the u s or whatever, to the extent that they have yeah. welfare state reforms, so it 's an ambiguity that is uh, pretty much universal yeah, yeah, in, yeah. Uh, you know, yeah capitalist absolutely. Yeah. welfare state, social democracy, whatever so why is it that uh, we're always talking about this in some way? Why is this such a serious yeah. central problem for us to, f- to solve yeah. It has i think two two obvious dimensions yeah there's a there's a political economic. Uh, dimension to this an ambiguity in the politics and the economics of the welfare state or of social democracy we're just going to use the term welfare state yeah for simplicity's sake to talk yeah. about this phenomenon yeah we
0: don't want to deal with though, like all of the variations in model yeah, yeah. The new we're, deal welfare state yeah. social democracy
1: keynesianism but mm-hmm. uh, german whatever. export yeah whatever corporatism all these yeah things, blah blah um and then on top of the political economic context, like this is a relevant discussion just to, you know, on its own terms. And yeah, like politics what is the welfare state in political economic terms? Yeah.
0: Because I, this is an important question, much more important than people might think. We feel that most people on the left don't really know what the welfare state is, at least in like in, in, in fully in political economic terms. Yeah. There's a tendency to read it in purely political terms.
1: Yeah. And there's all kinds of Marxist theory that people tend to read now like Italian, Italo-Marxist right. stuff. like Tr- And this is the theory that I read originally. Before right. I read Marx Capital, I read, you know, Tronti or something like that. Um, and this has an, an overly politicized kind of narrow understanding of the welfare state. Right. But on top of that discussion, which is important and we're going to have that today, there's also an architectural dimension to this. There's something specific about this problem in architecture discourse. Right. Yeah. Um, and that's
0: like the key point for us, right? Like, yeah. I mean... I mean, I, the key point in the sense of this is why it keeps coming up for us is that we're yeah. constantly running into these courses that attack, that go in like in, that are making a kind of a what seems to be a, a radical critique of the welfare state that seems to be like in direct contradiction with. The uh, like the objective material reality of the contemporary uh, political struggle. Yeah. And this happens in disciplinary terms, right? Like yeah. it's like an architecture, a left architecture seems fixated in the welfare state as it being the enemy, which oftentimes is even like confused with the neoliberal framework. Yeah. As is some kind of like meta-capitalist... Uh, technocratic. Technocratic govern- Government mentality. Exactly, you
1: yeah. know. And this... It's uh, kind of
0: typical sort of Foucaultian stuff.
1: Yeah. And it's been dominant for the last 50 years or so yeah. in architecture discourse. Yeah. Um, it's basically
0: as we see it as being kind of the fundamental ideological structure of postmodern thinking.
1: Yeah. It's less evident in like practical political activism around architecture. Yeah, wait. Yeah, yeah. Where like the struggle for council flats is just a, a given, unambiguous given.
0: Yeah, like w- when you're dealing with people who are actually political agents, who are engaged in politics, in yeah. political action and political work. There's a total consensus. Like no one, yeah. th- 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 it doesn't, no one
1: is making that take from the Twitter person. No. Absolutely. Everyone is fighting for concrete gains yes. for yes. people. Exactly. Like They're no, not make, It doesn't
0: yeah. matter if people self-identify as like anarchists or Trotskyists or communists or socialists or social democrats or whatever it is. It doesn't matter if they are explicitly reformist social democrats or see themselves as radical anti-capitalist revolutionaries. Yeah. Everyone, there's a kind of a generalized agreement that like in the practicality of the political struggle, there's, it's a consensus. We are fighting for universal free healthcare, universal free education, universal free housing, uh, et etc., et yeah. et and so on. Like, yeah. It's obvious. Like this is the contemporary stakes of the contemporary political struggle. When you move into the cultural fields and like uh, the intelligent, the, the the circles of the intelligentsia of kind of mm-hmm. petit bourgeois intellectuals, um, academia, and etc., and that that sometimes even shit. the same people, sometimes even the same yeah, people yeah, when they're, hat, yeah. they're when they're when they're in in the political action they're doing one thing when they're in the uh, academia they're like uh, radical leftist uh, yeah. critics of the welfare state with with kind yeah. of radical projects that challenge the validity of uh, the forms of social housing for example it's typical
1: so we're going to cover these two uh dimensions of the problem and obviously how they're they're intimately connected um but i think we should begin uh with the political economic side yeah and it seems to me that there are two kind of basic uh takes on the welfare state one sort of Positive one, one pro, one con. Let's say and they're both simplistic, uh, but here they are. So, f- from the from the first perspective, the welfare state is the result of political pressure by the working class on capital. So, an increasingly militant working class at the beginning of the twentieth century, end of the nineteenth century, into the beginning of the twentieth century, um, the arrival on the world stage of a socialist country in the Soviet Union after the successful communist revolution there. This puts a lot of pressure on capitalist countries in the West to begin making a deal with their own, you know, nascent revolutionary movements. The
0: yeah, which are also incredibly strong and powerful yeah. and growing and et cetera, yeah. and putting pressure yeah. at a national scale.
1: Yeah, so this increasingly militant, mobilized, organized, uh, and revolutionary working class forces the welfare state upon capital. Yeah. Uh, the other perspective Um, has the welfare state not the result of working class or socialist revolutionary pressure, but the welfare state as a capitalist psyop of some kind, basically. And this kind of reading sees... I mean, they they might even not call it the welfare state or not talk about Keynesian reforms or Keynesian counter-cyclical planning or whatever. They talk about things like Fordism or consumerism. Mm. So rather than talking about the gains in working class living standards, they talk about the consumer the transformation of workers into consumers right and their absorption into capitalist you know relations right right, right. Uh, yeah so
0: the material conditions there appear as uh, yeah as a negative as a negative yeah, yeah like the people are consuming more right uh, yeah the working class can afford more things
1: yeah uh can, so so fordism would be like the key term for this because it's basically a strategy for integrating workers into production and consumption yeah. developed by Henry Ford, yeah. rationalizing production, but also, ter- yeah, also making, you that's know. That's the point.
0: Like it's, it's a, it's a, a, the logic there is there is some kind of like large-scale total rationalization of capitalist of capitalist mode of production. Like the irrationalities of capitalist mode of production kind of are overcome yeah. by basically planning
1: mechanisms. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Planning in production, but also uh, planning in the macroeconomy which includes basically giving more money to workers so they can buy more stuff to increase the cycle of production. And, yeah. and can, yeah. like the, the expanded reproduction of capital yeah. is served by this policy. And actually the welfare state is strengthens capital and is like yeah. kind of the ultimate form of capitalism.
1: Yeah. And there's a there's a, a grain of truth in this, in that the post-war period in which you know welfare states dominated uh, Western capitalist countries is called the golden age of capitalism. Yeah, yeah. It was a, a time of incredible productivity growth, yeah. capitalist development, and yeah, so forth. Yeah. But I think let's let's begin with the first the first reading, the, yeah, yeah, the, yeah. the hyper-politicized reading where the welfare state is a compromise forced on capital yeah. by the working class. Yes.
0: That doesn't necessarily, matter. you said there's like a pro and con take. This, this, this one is not necessarily pro. You cannot take a, make a, a pro reading on it, but you also have the kind of con reading, which is like, it's a compromise. Like capital develops a strategy to placate the masses, like it's in uh, yeah. Jose's, uh question. Yeah, uh, it's a strategy that capital develops to placate the masses. Basically, it's bribing the workers to yeah. not do a revolution.
1: Yeah, and this was this was Tronti's basic take that I right. read years ago, yeah. which was yeah, uh, yeah, political pressure forces a reform on capital, and capital. Is able to learn from yeah. this yeah. external pressure from the yeah. working class and actually improve its techniques of control, yeah. and that's the whole. And this is like thesis.
0: this is part of the truth, obviously. Like, both yeah. both of these readings have truth to them, yeah. But they don't really work either. Either neither of them really works by itself, and you and and just fusing the two also doesn't so- so solve the problem. No, no. In fact, it kind of heightens them, heightens yeah. the problem.
1: Yeah. They can actually work in concert somehow,
0: right. which,
1: which is insane. So, what's missing from the hyperpolitical reading?
0: I mean, these are all part of the same problem of the kind of the growth of um... non-materialist pseudo-Marxism. Yeah, like the um, <laughs> the. Um... The, way, the, the ways of thinking in the left have transformed into basically left idealism. Uh, it's like, it's, again, it's a postmodern framework. Yep. The uh, a kind of a, the primacy of the subjective elements uh, over the uh, material elements. And the, the tendency uh, increasingly after the 60s and 70s has been to look at uh, politics as kind of a battle of ideas.
1: Yeah, I mean, you're basically stuck just trying to conduct some sort of consciousness-raising ideological struggle right. to make the working class more revolutionary right. uh, or to put some kind of political pressure right. uh, on capital. Right. But it's not grounded in any kind of con- uh, yeah. conjunctural reading of what's happening with yeah. capital.
0: And, and there is a, like, there's good reasons why people... Of course, this is like projected back into the study of history. Um, and there's reasons why you would think that way. Like you, if you're a political operative, you're p- putting primacy on what are political actions, what, what do you need to do now? And so you're all studying what political work has been. And so you look at the welfare state and you read it like we demanded things and capital gave it to us. It was a compromise indeed. We wished we would have achieved the revolution, but we didn't have enough force to impose that on capital. We couldn't do a revolution, but we could force capital to give us uh, stuff and to improve our conditions. Yeah. Um, And so you make a purely political reading of a kind of a balance of political power between workers and capital. Yeah. And of course, under that logic, if it's just a political issue, you can repeat it. And the contemporary stakes would be something like that. Like, again, capital, because the workers, like, lost uh, organizational capacity and the political power and agency... um, Capital has been stealing more and more from workers, and that's neoliberalism. And now uh, we are in a period of resurgence when workers are tired of this and are organizing again. And uh, we are again fighting for uh, to regain what we lost during this period and go back to the welfare state model, or potentially, who knows, maybe, uh, if we have enough force, even do the revolution. And, and, he, he, and, and even, here's the difference between revolution and reform is quantitative. It's like how much power the workers have.
1: Right. But it seems to me that it, it can also lead into the way, the thinking from your from your Twitter example, which is like last time we were fighting for concrete material gains, capitalism gave us those, and our revolutionary movement collapsed, and we abandoned communism. Right. This time we're not going to fall for that trick. Yes. Exactly. This time it's not about material gains. Yes. This time it's about communism. Yes. Whatever that means. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah. So so reading it in purely political terms uh, basically just leads you into a dead end?
0: Yeah. Yeah, and what is the alternative? The alternative is to understand that the welfare state is, a, is not a kind of a general abstract model through which capitalism can be managed at any given time. The welfare state is a concrete historical period of the history of capitalism that emerged because of the confluence of specific conditions. And the conditions are... Um, Yes, significant amount of uh, struggle and power over uh, organization of the working class to demand bear, but also the fact that capital was capable of giving that to the working class. And this is a very specific point that tends to be completely eclipsed in the discussion. Right. Um, the, um, like Lenin d- defined what a revolution is in a very simple formula. Like it's when uh, those uh, the oppressed uh, no longer accept I, I i don't know how to say this thing
1: accept is good yeah
0: yeah the the exploited no longer accept and the exploiters no longer can impose something like that yeah uh the the exploited no longer will and the exploiters no longer can to make it more poetic <laughs> um, this is a revolution now a lot of people, again, would make a, a purely political reading of what he's saying in that, it, again, it's a balance of power. Uh, we don't want to accept our exploitation anymore and uh, capital no, doesn't have the capacity to continue imposing it on us because we're too strong and organized right. and we'll just win the civil war or something, right? Yeah. Um, that's not just it. The side of capital not being able to is a political economic point. Uh, it specifically has to do with the capacity of capital to somehow placate the working class. And capital can only do it if there is, like, what 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 does it mean to placate the working class? It means to take away a portion of what, up to a certain point, is profit and get, transfer it to the working class, to increase what is usually called the social wage, right? Yeah. Um, so, capital is actually reducing its profit margins in order to construct the welfare state. Right. And in order for capital to reduce its profit margins to give people like, to, like paying a part of the profit margin in taxes to support uh, for that then the state spends in education, healthcare, uh, whatever, housing, or directly in salaries, as well, in higher salaries as well. Um, capital needs to have the leeway in the profit margin to be able to abdicate from that, capitalism just like capitalists don't keep increasing their profit margins just because they're because they're, they're evil and greedy. Yeah,
1: yeah.
0: Uh, capital is in a constant state of crisis. Right, um, it is in the fundamental structure of capitalism, of the expanded cycle of, of the cycle of expanded reproduction of uh, capitalism, that uh, capital is in accumulating wealth. And the accumulation of wealth happens also in the form of means of production, more technological means of increasing the productivity of labor.
1: More what factories, is, more machines, yeah. more, yeah.
0: Computers or whatever. Yeah. Um, these um, increasing productivity, what today is fashionable to call automation, it's just increased productivity. Yeah. The, uh, the increases in productivity mean, uh, basically means that uh, a certain unit of uh, work, like you know, a worker works for an hour, uh, they produce more than they produced before because the means of production are better. Now, unfortunately for capital, this seems to, that it's great, right, if capital does this, everything is fine, and it keeps expanding and expanding. But unfortunately for capital, the only source of surplus value is human labor. Um, this is kind of a complicated thing, but if, we're not going to go in detail
1: into this. Yeah, to, to, to put it in, in kind of intuitive terms, it doesn't really capture the whole, the whole thing, but just to put it in simple kind of uh, as a crisis of under-consumption terms, like the, the less workers you need to produce, the less workers you're paying a wage, the less workers can buy products from capitalists, and capitalists have to start basically buying their own goods and eating their own profits with consumption. So this is just an intuitive way to think, if you replaced all the workers with robots, there would be no one to buy goods from capitalists, but other capitalists.
0: Yeah, yeah.
1: This doesn't capture how it, the so the it, actual it, dynamic. But this is an intuitive in, way to grasp something yeah, of what's, yeah, go, what's yeah, going on. Yeah, this
0: is kind of a simplification of the model. Yeah. Uh, the uh, the this is like the, the Marx identified what he uh, like as probably the most important law of the functioning of a capitalist economy as the law of the tendency of the profit rate to fall, which describes this dynamic. The more accumulated capital you have in uh, the economy, the smaller the profit rate is. The the larger the mass of profits are, but the smaller the rate of profit is. And this is uh, like tragic for capital. Uh, What this effectively means is that the more wealth, it seems paradoxical, the more wealth you have in the economy, the more uh, tight is like the the math yeah. of capitalist exploitation, and yeah. over time, capital needs to compensate for this with uh, what is usually called counter t- tendencies, um, and in the end of the day, these end up uh, moving in the direction of the increasing uh, increasing the rate of exploitation, which means which doesn't necessarily mean automatically lowering the wage. It can be done in many different ways. Uh, I mean, increased productivity allows you to increase the rate of exploitation by simply not increasing the salary, but increasing productivity. So you're automatically increasing the rate of exploitation. But over time, you reach a point where you're basically observing generalized reductions in the social wage. And this is what we usually call neoliberalism. That's, That's what the transition from the welfare state to neoliberalism was, right?
1: Um, the other, the other, and the other aspect of this is financialization. So, as the profitability of industry declines, capitalists stop investing in like car factories and just start putting their money in something safer, like real estate. Yeah, and they just start speculating on on assets. Basically. Yeah, and this is
0: an inevitable component also of the decrease of the social wage. You are cutting on the consumption capacity of the worker masses, which are also the consumer masses always. And so, if you are diminishing the the, the productive capacity, if you are diminishing the consumption capacity, like you are reducing the the um, incentives in the capitalist economy to invest in productive capital, yeah, because you're not going to have enough uh, demand for your supply, so you're going to be cutting in the product. Capital will start cutting in supply. And putting their capital investments, not into productive capital, into productive forms of material wealth, but into uh, speculative uh, yeah. financial mechanisms. And over time, you have the process of financialization as an outcome.
1: Yeah, and the, you can see the the paradox here in that, like, leading up to the 2008 financial crash, there was a huge amount of capital floating around in the global economy. Right. Low profit rates didn't mean, like, less capital out there. Yeah. It was actually an enormous amount of capital. Yes. Too much capital. Yeah. Which had nowhere to put itself. If you don't invest capital, uh, it just depreciates from inflation. You need to actually always be investing capital profitably for not to lose value. Yeah. So they just start speculating on more and more fictitious, uh, risky, you know, uh, financial products. Yeah, whatever,
0: whatever gives you the most return for investment in the short term. It's yeah. a quick buck, essentially. Yeah,
1: and this is how you get a bubble. Yeah, yeah, which popped in two thousand and eight. Yes. The, um, so, so so, yeah, so what this means is that you can't, you can't think of a capitalist economy as a stable, you know, system, which is based on a, you know, or, or a stable economically, but unstable politically, it's also unstable economically. Yes. There's an underlying, underlying dynamics to capitalism, uh, that create crises Basically, irrespective of like revolutionary pressure. Yes. Although that plays an enormous. Yeah, I mean the, in, an inevitable role.
0: The, the, the Marxist point is that revolutionary pressure is an inevitable outcome. Yeah. An inevitable political outcome of the economic instability of yeah. capital. Yeah. Capitalism necessarily tends towards an increase in the rate of exploitation, which. Uh, but at the same time that it increases the level of organization of the, of, 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 of the production process. So you have increasingly more organized workers at the level of the process of production, at the, and more socialized workers, at the same time that you have them, like capital paying them less over yeah. time. Yeah. That creates uh, the conditions for the workers to, in an organized fashion, revolt and take over the means of yeah. production.
1: Yeah. And this means you have to kind of dissociate a specific material demand or gain from like an ideological strategy, like welfare state ism right. or social democracy. Yeah. Uh, like social democracy exists as an ideology. We're not going to talk about sure. that right yeah. now. But it means you have to look historically at the conditions in which a demand from workers, let's say, can be satisfied by capitalists or not. Maybe yeah. capital isn't exactly. in a position to make that exactly. reform. Therefore, the demand puts revolutionary pressure yeah. on capital, and not this is, just reformist pressure. And
0: this, is, this is why it's important to think about welfare states as a concrete historical moment yeah. or period. The welfare state happens. Glennon's formulation is revolution is those below no longer will, those above no longer can. Revolu- uh, reform, or the welfare state, is when those below no longer will, but those above still can. And this is crucial. This means that the like, the difference between you getting a revolution or you getting a welfare state reform is not so much in, like, the left infighting between reformist tendencies and uh, revolutionary tendencies. This is not an infighting that always happens. It is important that, for political reasons, that a revolutionary tendency continues to exist. Um, and I mean, you can't avoid this, 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 this infighting problem. Uh, but in the end of the day, the reformist tendencies in the left will win if capital can actually afford to give this to the yeah. workers. Yeah. If it can't, then the workers who initially will go for the reform because it's easier, you don't have to fight a civil war or something to get it, right? Yeah. Um, if you can't get it from capital because capital can't afford to give it to you, then the workers will tendentially move in the revolutionary direction and eventually you get revolution, Right. This yep. is why, and the Portuguese case is a very good example of that, but pretty much every single fucking revolution in history is preceded by a relatively short period of moderate reforms. Like, workers, when you look at, you think, you might think that, like, workers revolt when their situation is so fucking unbearable that you, they just can't take it anymore. And this has an element of truth to it. But it they, you, you, when you actually look at what, what historically t- tends to happen, you tend to have compromises, limited compromises before revolutions. Uh, The revolution happens when, because of those compromises are too limited. And, and, but at the same time they are emboldening if we kind of start yeah. thinking about yeah. like the political psychology, social psychology of, of yeah. the working class, yeah. it shows that you can get stuff if you organize uh, That embo- like the working class is emboldened by limited victories to push for more and more and when the more doesn't come and the revolutionary uh, the working class is very organized, it becomes revolutionary and it has a capacity for winning like even in the bourgeois revolutions of like the French revolution that have a significant working class dimension this happened, like Louis XVI was the most progressive fucking, like the, <laughs> the king of the of the of the French absolutist monarchy. Like he did large liberal reforms that, like, with social reforms and etcetera, to improve the conditions of 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 of, of the working class. Uh, it. it like for 10 or so years before the revolution, uh, this was the case. With constantly attempting to do reforms and being able to do some of them, but constantly being uh, uh, kind of running, against, like running up against the wall of the aristocracy, trying to block every single one of them. Uh, and so they were very limited, and eventually you have a revolution happening. The same thing in, like, basically every revolution has this history. Uh, the Soviet Revolution, since 1905, went through a period of liberal and social reforms. Um, until 1917 when those reforms were not enough and also there was a war. The Portuguese Revolution of 1974 is preceded by a period of 10 or 15 years of social reforms, so to what the, the fascist state starts doing, uh, like establish the foundation of, uh, national, of the Portuguese NHS and the uh, universal housing and the universal pension scheme. But again, they're extremely limited, but they show the possibility of the model that is then universalized and generalized by the revolution because the previous regime could hint... At what was possible but wouldn't do it, right? So you have after World War II was a very specific moment. You have the workers very organized, very strong uh, and demanding more. And uh, after a, a period when uh, the, uh, the capitalist regimes were basically telling them you're going to fight in the war and then after the war you're going to be recompensed. Yeah. Right? And you, but you also have something extremely important, which is that capital can actually afford this, and it can afford to give people, uh, what the, the working class, what they want. And like they could during the interwar years, the, again, the interwar years was a period of limited reforms. The real reforms happened after 1945 because the technological apparatus of production had endured extensive destruction. There was a massive decrease in... Uh, Constant capital. In, in what is called, in Marxist terminology, constant capital. Um, and that's, this increases the profit rate. Again, it sounds weird and paradoxical, but because of the material destruction of the war, the profit rate was had increased massively.
1: Yeah. All the, all the factories had been destroyed, infrastructure, cars, you know, yeah. different things. Yeah. All this can now be produced and sold again, basically, yeah. to put it in kind of exactly. intuitive terms. Basically.
0: Yeah. So... What you have here is like a, the, the capital uniquely is capable of giving all that stuff to the workers because it has a massive profit rate. At the same time, that the workers have the power and will to demand it, which is uncommon that both happen at the same time. Yeah. <laughs> because usually the workers are protesting and organizing when things are bad for them. And yeah. things are bad for them, what capital has been stealing from them to compensate for the falling rate of profit. It is uncommon to have both simultaneously. You have both simultaneously, specifically after World War II, because of the destruction of the war. Yeah. You don't have the same situation now. Like, right. right now, the rate of profit, is it, it's never been lower in the entire history of capitalism. There will be no welfare state. Yeah, They need Im- immediate, quick profit. Im- like right now, in the short term, they cannot yeah. abdicate from a fraction of a percentile. Yeah. to give it as a social wage. That's not going to happen.
1: Tory's mini-budget right now. Yeah. Remove caps on uh, banker bonuses, tax breaks for the very rich. Yeah. No compromise, no, no, compromise. no Yeah. Subsidize all the energy company uh, super profits.
0: Yes. So the, the uh, understanding that there is a, a dimension that is de- of, of, to the welfare state that is determined by the rate of profit is crucial. Yeah. Now, the fact that the, the the capitalist state in this situation will give to the working class all of the things that we associate with the welfare state does not mean that all of those things are inherently welfare state things. right? right. What you have first tentatively in very limited ways after World War One and in, in the interwar period, and then in much more serious ways after World War Two, is... Basically, the capitalist states copying the Soviet Union, like all of the, the fundamental pillars of the welfare state, again, universal free housing, education, uh, health care, and the universal pension scheme. These are the four fundamental pillars of the welfare state. These are also the four fundamental pillars of the social economic reforms of the Soviet Union. They are invented in the Soviet Union after the Socialist Revolution. And these are, you can't, I mean... Of, I, I know like, people say yeah. the Soviet <laughs> Union is a capitalist. Is a well, state for, capitalism. It's a state capitalism. <laughs> There's no markets in the Soviet Union. Okay. Yeah. So, yeah. I mean, it's, that doesn't work. Like Capitalism is market. Yeah. There's no labor market. So, like, work, workers aren't selling their yeah. labor in the labor market. I,
1: investment of surplus is not capitalism? No. Uh,
0: yeah, production of surplus, accumulation of surplus, and investment, it's not the same thing. Anyway, uh, you, we can make many uh, kind of very interesting, and detailed, uh, critical reading of, the failures of the Soviet Union in many ways, but it being capitalism isn't one of them. Um, Regardless, what you have is what seems to be an incredibly successful economic model in the Soviet Union between the revolution uh, to the end of of World War II. And after that, I would say, like, until the 70s, it's it's basically the fastest-growing economy in world history. And a significant increase in the material conditions of the workers. That is built on the back of these uh, reforms that are done in socialism, invented in socialism, and capitalism really appropriates them and applies them. Uh, like it gives to the social to the increase in the social wage the shape that the Soviet Union had kind of invented. Right. So, like fighting for public housing isn't a welfare state demand, right? But it's it's a it's a demand for the improvement in the material conditions of the working class, yeah. which the capitalist state may give to you if it can afford it and if you're strong enough to demand to, uh, to force it to do it. And then you have a welfare state. So the welfare state is when you have capitalism imposing that situation. That doesn't make that, that situation is inherently the welfare state.
1: Yeah. Yeah for all those still uh addicted to philosophy this is the <laughs> there's the dialectic of uh quantity into quality like think about the material reforms as incremental uh quantitative problems concrete material problems the idea of transforming society into communism when the workers control government is like some sort of qualitative shift when all these gains are made and the capitalists are overthrown right but just think Think about your approach to revolution first in quantitative terms, in material terms, with the with the you know revolutionary strategy in the back of your head. Right.
0: Yeah, I mean, there's a tendency. Speaking for... of Richard Wolff, like
1: <laughs> <laughs> when the government does things, that's socialism. <laughs> what is it's it? It's the other way around. Socialism is when the government does
0: things. If the government does a lot of things, that's communism. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, the um, there, there is a tendency to think about this in, in these terms. Like, it's so hard to get even reforms and you want to fight for revolution, you, yeah. you would hear yeah. from a kind of a moderate leftist. Um, no, like, the point is that you get revolutions when you can't get reform. It's not a quantitative difference of yeah. having enough power to enforce it. It's yeah. a qualitative difference in the material conditions of capital. Yeah,
1: And the difficulty of achieving reforms doesn't mean you start demanding revolution now and, and stop organizing on the basis of concrete material gains. For yeah, the exactly. That's how mass organizing works.
0: Yeah, obviously. And if and if you know that you can't get uh, the reforms from capital because capital does not have the profit rate to afford it, then all the more reason after the revolutionary to demand them.
1: Yeah, and they sound reasonable. Why won't capital give it? Well, it must be a problem with capitalism. Yeah, exactly. Let's overthrow it and have socialism. If, if capital can't afford it, if they tell you, no, we can't afford that right now, which yeah.
0: is literally what they tell you all the time. Yeah. And yeah. then you say, well, you actually can, uh, because look at all of these profits of the big corporations. And that's true, but also not, because they can't, because yeah, they have a lot of massive profits, but a low profit rate. Yeah. Um, and the two things are true at the same time. Like, that's why you need to push for it. You, yeah. like, at the immediate level, people see the amassment of wealth at the, their expense uh, at in the top of the economy. Uh, obviously they demand reforms. And ca- if capital won't re- afford those reforms, then they will become increasingly revolutionary in the process of the struggle.
1: To go back to that tweet, like the difference between a sock dem, as far as, you know, material gains, reforms are concerned, the difference between a sock dem and a communist is that a communist knows that in ev- eventually and in the long run, capitalism cannot give these gains to the working yes, class. Yes, exactly. That crises are endemic, and inevitable, yes. And that only a transition to communism, socialism, communism, whatever, uh, can actually give the working class, the masses of people, yeah. the the gains and the you know material quality of life exactly. that they need. Yeah, a uh, thinks that capitalism can always somehow afford these. That that yeah. com- that, that compromise can always be made. It's purely
0: right? a, an issue of of uh, balance of power.
1: Yeah, and that communism, socialism aren't necessary because. You know, there's enough for everyone within exactly. capitalism. Yeah, yeah. So we're gonna we're gonna actually leave the second part uh, till next week.
0: Yeah. So long episode, two parter. Uh, we pick up on the second point: the radical critique of the welfare state. Yeah. As an evil capitalist conspiracy to stop <laughs> revolution.
1: And we're gonna talk a lot more about architecture next week yes. too.
0: How how these two uh, frameworks uh, essentially lead into a. The position that we feel is incredibly damaging to uh, what what would be like a consistent left position in architecture.
1: So, uh, until then, please uh, uh, go to Patreon
0: and send us more questions. Send us more questions. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: Patreon.com/slash/StreetSweeperPod.
0: Indeed, and see you next week. See you next week for the second part.
1: Bye bye. Bye.